The views expressed on this program are not necessarily the views of this station. Content is for educational purposes only. Consult a financial advisor or conduct your own due diligence of investing. Calls are pre-screened and the show was pre-recorded earlier this week. Rick is with Edelman Financial Engines, a part of Financial Engines Advisors, LLC, and the investment advisor that furnishes this program. Barron's ranks financial advisory firms based on assets managed, team size, experience, and regulatory record. Firms self-nominate. Investment returns and experience are not considered. Advisors in the Hall of Fame have been in the top 100 for 10 plus years. Future performance is not guaranteed. This is the Rick Edelman Show. Barron's ranks Edelman Financial Engines the number one independent investment advisor in the country. And Rick is in the Barron's Financial Advisor Hall of Fame. Now, here's Rick Edelman. And a very happy weekend to you. Welcome to the Rick Edelman Show. Thanks so much for joining us on the program today. We've got a lot going on in the investment world, don't we? Like uh, We have nothing else going on anywhere else in the course of our lives these days. But in the world of Wall Street, there's a record being set. It's in the area of junk bonds. Yeah, there's a rally. Junk bonds are on pace to set a 16-year record. So far this year, through the end of July... Corporate America has sold over $300 billion worth of junk bonds. That's 32% more junk bonds than last year at this same time. Why are they selling so many junk bonds? Well, because investors want them. And why do investors want them? Because you're fed up with the zero point nothing that you're earning in your bank account. I mean, I know what your situation is. You want higher yield. And you remember the good old days, you know, back in the 1970s, the 1980s, when bank CDs were paying 10, 12, 14% interest rates? Of course, inflation was at all-time highs as well. We were in the throes of a horrific recession. Remember the oil embargo? You couldn't even buy gasoline except every other day of the week based on your license plate number. Well, those are the so-called good old days, but at least interest rates were high. At least you were able to earn a decent rate of return, or so it seemed, in your bank CDs and bank accounts. Those days are long gone. Interest rates now at historic lows, and you know what you're not earning in your bank accounts, checking, savings, money market funds, money market accounts, and CDs, treasuries, you name it, they're all paying pretty much zero point nothing. And investors are fed up with this, especially retired investors who are dependent on that monthly income, the dividend or the interest they earn on those accounts. You need that money to help pay your bills. You've been counting on that. If you have a highly diversified portfolio, You know, a lot of folks have a portfolio that's what, typically 60-40, 60% in stocks, 40% in bonds. Well, that 40% in bonds is earning close to nothing. Well, what's that doing to your overall total return of your comprehensive portfolio? This is frustrating for a lot of folks. And as a result, people are chasing yields. They want higher returns. Junk bonds to the rescue. What is a junk bond anyway? You've heard the phrase for decades, but what exactly is it? Well, there are two kinds of bonds, definitionally. Is that a word? You've got investment-grade bonds and speculative-grade bonds. These definitions matter because under the law, certain entities are restricted as to the kinds of bonds they're allowed to buy. Endowments, pension funds, uh, and other sovereign funds, and certain trusts are restricted as to only being able to buy investment-grade bonds. These are bonds deemed safe. 
or relatively safe compared to the alternative. These are bonds that are issued by entities, either governments or corporations, that are considered not likely to default. The super safest in the world, uh, according to this thesis, is the United States government. U.S. treasuries are globally considered the safest investment in the world. Why? Because the United States government is the only government in world history that has never defaulted on an interest or principal payment. No other government anywhere in world history can make that same claim. And therefore, the attitude is the U.S. government is not going to default, and therefore its bonds are super safe. Well, I think we could probably say the same thing about Apple. Is Apple about to go broke anytime soon or Amazon or IBM? I think there are a lot of companies that are equally pretty safe and secure. How about some state governments? You know, aren't states as safe as the federal government? Well, almost. States have been known to default on their bonds. Florida, Georgia, Alabama, Kentucky, Tennessee. Yeah, the states of the Confederacy. They lost the war. Their bonds became worthless. And so states can theoretically go broke. We've seen cities default. New York defaulted, right, in the 1970s. We've uh, had other states more recently go into default. Some are claiming the bankruptcy. Uh, and so those bonds theoretically become worthless as the issuer fails to repay. But that's why we have bond ratings to help you as the investor evaluate the relative safety of a bond. The super safest are deemed triple A. The second level is double A and then single A. Oh, and then there's triple B, double B, single B, and then there's triple C. Everything triple C and above is considered investment grade. Everything below that, double C, single C, triple D, they are considered speculative grade. These are bonds issued by companies that frankly might not survive. The company's finances are so shaky that they are forced to pay very high rates of interest in order to get you to give them your money. And the bonds may prove worthless if the company goes broke. In fact, when you get to a triple D, you're in default. These bonds have already defaulted. The company has already stopped paying interest and principal on them. Well, investors are not caring about the risks that they're taking, apparently, because they've invested over $300 billion into these junk bonds so far this year. The average yield of these bonds is 4.6%. Wow, that's pretty enticing, isn't it? I mean, you got a bank CD that's paying you 02 and here's a junk bond paying 4.6. I mean, after all, what are the odds that that bond's going to default prior to maturity? Well, that's the risk that you're taking, right? And what's fascinating is that the bonds that have been bought most by investors are triple C and below. The bonds that are deemed speculative grade. The worst bonds out there in terms of quality, in terms of safety. So my message to you is simple. You need to recognize that the lower you go on the rating scale, two things happen. Number one, the higher the yield. So if you see something that's paying a whole lot more than everything else, well, it's simply because it's taking a greater risk. And that's the double-sided coin. On one side, higher yield. But on the other side, higher risk. So if you're going to buy junk bonds, you need to make sure you know that you're doing that and that you're comfortable with the risks associated with that investment. And I know what you're saying, Rick, I, this all sounds fun and fascinating, but it doesn't apply to me. 
because I don't buy bonds. I don't even buy stocks. What I buy are ETFs and mutual funds. Well, bully for you. Glad to hear it. I'm excited that you're buying funds. That's the way we invest here at Edelman Financial Engines, the way we've always done it here, because you have diversification in a fund. If you buy a single stock or a single bond, you have just one stock, one bond. But you buy one fund, that fund may own hundreds, even thousands of stocks or bonds in the portfolio. The diversification provides a level of safety that you don't get from an individual security. But thematically... You're still in the stock market or the bond market. And there are different kinds of stock funds. There are different kinds of bond funds. Some bond funds only buy treasuries. Some bond funds only buy short-term as opposed to long-term bonds. And some bond funds buy junk bonds. So, yeah, I'm glad to hear that you buy bond funds, but I want you to ask, What's inside those funds? What kind of bonds is it that you own? That's the key question. If you don't know, simply ask your financial advisor. It's pretty simple and easy to find out the answer. You could go online to look at the fund on the website by the fund company that issues the fund, or just call your financial advisor. They'll tell you quick and easy whether or not you own any junk bonds, and if so, to what degree they exist in your portfolio. You need to know what's in your portfolio. You need to know what's in the cake you're about to eat so that you don't end up with a nasty case of indigestion. I'm Rick Edelman. You're listening to The Truth About Money. You know, we've mentioned here on the program over the past couple of months that the end of this year is the winding down of my involvement here at Edelman Financial Engines and particularly this radio show. And we've had some accolades being offered from some pretty notable folks in the marketplace. And I'm really excited at this message that I received from George Ball, the former chair of Prudential. Here's his note. Rick Edelman is well known as a financial educator as a financial planner and as a leader in the financial services industry. He deserves all of those accolades, but actually should be lauded for his skills in other sectors as well. For example, Rick, although he professes not to be a market savant, was one of the early identifiers of ETFs as being a better financial solution for most households than mutual funds. He saw that the costs, the fees, and the conflicts that were embedded in the mutual fund complex were high, particularly compared to the advantages, the liquidity, the lower tax liabilities of exchange-traded funds. He made that switch at Edelman Financial Services very early in the game, and others followed him. Likewise, Rick was one of the first people to identify the advantages to the household of paying a fee rather than commissions. He saw that it was a more equitable, uh, a more aligned, and a better, generally cheaper, way for households to pay for the service. So Rick is a financial planner, yes. He is an educator, yes. But he also saw things in the structures of the market, in the way that people could invest, that could be made better, and was quick not only to adapt them, but to tell other people about them. Uh, Rick, this is George Ball saying thank you for a whole lot of things, and I could enumerate many, many more. Stay with us for more here on The Rick Edelman Show. Triple H, Plan Rick, online at rickedelman.com.
by Talkers Magazine as one of the 100 most important radio talk show hosts in the country. This is The Rick Edelman Show. Back to the Rick Edelman Show. Thanks for hanging around. I'm really excited to tell you that we here at Edelman Financial Engines have just won three Apex Awards. Very excited about this. These are awards based on excellence in graphic design, editorial content, and the ability to achieve overall communications excellence. We won the grand award in the category of writing for the November 2020 issue of our newsletter, Inside Personal Finance, the Apex Grand Awards honor the outstanding works in each main category. We also won two awards of excellence, which recognize exceptional entries in each of the individual subcategories. We won the Award of Excellence in the Electronic Media category for the special report we published last year in the midst of the COVID crisis called The Long-Term Financial Impact of COVID-19 and What It Means for You. We also won an excellence award in the newsletter category for our client newsletter, Inside Personal Finance and the electronic and email issue, the entire August 12th, 2020 issue won the Excellence Award there. We're very honored and excited by uh, the key Apex Awards. Very excited about that. You know, in the last segment, we were talking about junk bonds. We were talking about the fact you may own bonds via your mutual funds or ETFs. And then you heard George Ball, the former chair of Prudential, talk about the fact that I was very early in the financial services industry in adopting ETFs for our client portfolios, going away from antiquated retail mutual funds, which were the way that so many financial advisors served clients and moved, this is back more than 15 years ago, back in the early 2000s, over to exchange-traded funds. In fact, you heard me talk a couple of weeks ago here on the show that there has been an explosion in the adoption of ETFs by consumers. There is a record of the amount of money being invested in ETFs and simultaneously Net outflows from mutual funds, investors recognizing that ETFs offer advantages over ordinary retail mutual funds, and they're voting with their dollars. Uh, they're putting their money where they feel that it's uh, superior. J.P. Morgan has now made an announcement this week that they are converting four of their mutual funds, total of $10 billion in assets, to ETFs. They're going to do it early next year. When making the announcement, J.P. Morgan said, quote, the intraday liquidity, the transparency and the potential tax benefits that come with ETFs carry significant value to many investors. And these particular strategies are well suited for the ETF structure. So mainstream Wall Street is recognizing the superiority of ETFs over mutual funds, and they're making the conversion. Instead of telling their clients to sell their mutual funds and move the money into ETFs, they're just transforming the mutual funds into ETFs. Guinness Atkinson Funds was the first mutual fund company to do this. Back in March of this year, they converted two of their mutual funds to ETFs. And in June, DFA, one of the largest mutual fund companies, converted four of its mutual funds with $29 billion in assets into ETFs. So if you're not going to move your money into ETFs, if you are still sticking with the old school mutual funds you've got, well, you're going to discover, I suspect, that your fund company is going to do it on your behalf because they're arguing that ETFs offer advantages in their structure. This is not an investment thing. This is a structure thing. You know, mutual funds were invented 
back in the days of paper and pencil. It was the Investment Company Act of 1940 that legally established the mutual fund industry. Legally, mutual funds are called investment companies. They're companies that invest in other companies. So these are companies that buy the stocks of other companies or the bonds of other companies. So technically, a mutual fund is an investment company. And it was the Investment Company Act of 1940 that created all this. Actually, the very first mutual fund predates the law. It was created in 1924. And that mutual fund, by the way, still exists today. And the industry has grown massively. But mutual funds, which made an awful lot of sense, were incredibly advantageous compared to buying individual stocks and bonds, provided a lot of benefits to individual investors. You didn't have to decide which stocks and bonds to buy. You just put your money into the fund and you let the fund do it for you. You didn't have to deal with the individual trading. Uh, You didn't have to deal with the record keeping of all of those trades. Made a lot of sense. But with the development of technology, with computerization, with electronic trading that exists on Wall Street now, mutual funds became kind of antiquated. And that's why ETFs came onto the marketplace. And ETF takes advantage of the computer technology. And how do they differ? Well, in some fundamental ways. For example, in a mutual fund, they're only priced once per day. At the end of the day, when Wall Street closes at 4 p.m., when they close the New York Stock Exchange for the day, that is when your mutual fund gets priced. So when you put money into a mutual fund during the day, you don't actually know the share price until after the market closes at the end of the day. That's a little silly. Well, ETFs solve that problem. ETFs provide real-time pricing. The value, the price of an ETF fluctuates throughout the entire day just like stocks and bonds do, so you don't have to wait until after the market closes to find out the price you got for your trade. Also, ETFs are far more transparent. You know exactly the holdings of your ETF at all times because they disclose it. Mutual funds only tell you what they own twice a year in their annual report and their semi-annual report. And both of those reports are issued months in arrears. So by the time you find out what the mutual fund is holding... Well, that news is several months old and it might not reflect what the fund is currently holding at the very moment. So you have greater transparency with ETFs compared to mutual funds. And due to the way ETFs work, which is detail I'm not going to bother boring you with here, that's a college 101 class, uh, the way that they operate, you can actually end up with a tax benefit uh, that makes it cheaper to own on an annual basis. All right, I'll mention one since you asked. ETFs generally trade much less often than mutual funds. And the less you trade, the fewer capital gains you're going to distribute on an annual basis, which for taxable accounts can lower your annual tax liability. So there are a lot of benefits and advantages to ETFs, which is why we were early champions of them and why I recommend that you take a look at these as well. Now, that doesn't mean we use them exclusively. You know, ETFs are often very much cheaper than mutual funds, but not always. There are some pretty darn cheap mutual funds as well. So for our client portfolios here in our firm, we use a combination of mutual funds as well as ETFs. And I think your financial advisor probably does the same thing. How do you know for sure? Ask. It's not hard. Just call your financial advisor and say, I want to talk about the makeup of my portfolio. Are we using exclusively mutual funds? And if we are, why? I want you to compare those mutual funds in my portfolio with alternatives that are available in the marketplace. If you've got a good advisor, your advisor will be able to do that for you without any challenge. I'm Rick Edelman. You got questions about your portfolio? Call us, 888-PLAN-RIC. You're listening to The Rick Edelman Show. I'd like to bring you some of the latest and greatest in the field of exponential technologies. 
A Chinese company has released CyberDog. Boston Dynamics has Spot, other robot dogs. The CyberDog is only 1500 bucks. What do these dogs do? They go into dangerous places. They let doctors visit patients remotely. Law enforcement and military are both testing out these dogs. The CyberDog has already issued a 1,000 of them. They cost about $1,500. We'll have to see if that price remains intact. The CyberDog can do backflips, carry up to 6 pounds, and can trot 10 feet per second. That's faster than you walk. And how about a, uh, a robot that can fly? Yeah, it's called a drone. But this one can fly for 90 days carrying 800 pounds. Its wingspan is bigger than a 747 and can fly to 45,000 feet. Guess who's funding the demo? The U.S. Navy. And then there's another robot named Cassie. Bipedal, meaning it has two feet. It can move forward, backward, or side to side. Cassie taught itself how to walk and then ran a 5K. Oh, there are more robots coming into commercial use uh, at Grubhub. They're using robots to deliver food on college campuses this fall. Rovers the size of a suitcase being used at 250 colleges. The rovers can carry 44 pounds. That's a lot of pizza. Navigate pavements, crosswalks, and they travel faster than pedestrians. Watch out. There's going to be a rover or spot the dog coming your way soon. You're listening to The Truth About Money. I'm Rick Edelman, 888-PLAN-RICK, rickedelman.com. More with the author of the number one bestseller, Rescue Your Money, coming up on The Rick Edelman Show. Let's go to the phones here on the Rick Edelman Show. Talking with Michael. He's in Placentia, California. Welcome to the show, Michael. How can I help? Thank you. If you really like your financial advisor and your advisor decides that he's going to go to another firm, how would you advise me? I would like to go with him because I like him a lot. I trust him. Should I stay where I'm at, the company, or go to the investment firm that he's with? Let me share with you the things you want to think about and consider to help you decide which is the best choice for you. First of all, as I've often said, you could go to the greatest hospital in the world, but if your surgeon is a klutz, you die anyway. So your advisor matters a lot. How much do you trust and feel comfortable with the quality of the advice, the breadth of services, uh, and the level of attention and uh, responsiveness that you get to meeting your needs. Uh, if you're ever saying to yourself, it's always hard to get a hold of him, it takes him too long to get back to me, um, he's on vacation too much, or it takes too many days to respond to my emails, or uh, things don't get done when I ask, or there are often mistakes or omissions, or I never hear from him, I, I always have to reach out to him. If you've got those kinds of issues, well, his leaving gives you an opportunity to start fresh. Uh, on the other hand, if if you're just thoroughly enamored and enraptured with this advisor to the degree where you've recommended all of your friends and colleagues and neighbors to hire this person because you think they're the greatest advisor in the world, then the first question you have to ask is, why did my advisor leave? Why did the advisor go to another firm? There are only two possible answers to that question. One is, the advisor isn't happy where they are. Number two 
they were enticed very heavily by the new firm. They were recruited. This is a very big issue in the financial services industry. It has occasionally gotten regulators involved. There are disclosure issues associated with this. And the reason is that there have been a lot of cases where firms have dangled bonus packages to advisors saying, if you'll leave where you are and come work for us, we will give you a signing bonus of twice your annual income. Three times your annual income. There have been even stories of four times your annual income for an advisor to leave. Well, that's a pretty strong motivation for an advisor to leave. So why would a company, why would a brokerage firm or or advisory firm offer to pay such a big bonus, a signing bonus to an advisor? Why would they be willing to do that? There's only one reason. The firm is expecting the advisor to bring all of his or her clients with them. They're expecting the advisor to bring all the clients and all of the assets of those clients because it's the assets under management that generates revenues for that firm. So that firm is betting that the advisor is going to bring the assets along. And if that happens... What's the advice that the advisor is going to give you when you move over? Is your advisor going to be compelled to recommend new and different investments? Because that's what the new firm is expecting. That's what the new firm needs the advisor to do, to generate new commissions or new revenue or new assets under management from selling new products or doing what have you. And if that happens, you're going to see a massive disruption in your portfolio. You could incur substantial taxes. If you move money, because if you sell your assets to move to the new firm, that's a taxable implication. If the money's in an IRA, that doesn't matter. But if it's a taxable account, you could take a big tax hit. You could incur fees and expenses as a result of moving. Uh, Who knows what the new portfolio is going to look like, et cetera. Now, I'm not suggesting any of the above is going to happen. It's possible, very possible, that the advisor will say to you, move with me. Everything will remain exactly as it was. My point is, you need to know what life is going to be like for you in the new firm. I get it. I understand that. But what about your advisor's support system? In a lot of firms, advisors have assistants, they have associates, they have analysts, they have complete back office support. That's certainly the case at Edelman Financial Engines. If the advisor leaves, okay, fine. But, you know, a pitcher without a catcher isn't going to do very much pitching. So you might be keeping your advisor, but you're losing your advisor's team who may be responsible for that wonderful service you've been experiencing. And finally, uh, related to all of this, is the investment management strategy itself. Your advisor that you have now uh, may well be providing to you an investment strategy that is cultivated by the firm that the advisor is with. Uh, It may be based on the strategy, philosophy, methodology that the firm and its principles have developed. That's certainly the case at Edelman Financial Engines. I mean, the firm that that Gene and I founded 36 years ago, we crafted the investment management strategy, which all of our advisors adhere to. So the advisor didn't particularly invent that, create that. Uh, The firm provides it and the firm manages it and the firm handles it. What will that mean for you going forward? To what degree is your advisor able to maintain and perpetuate that? Or will the new firm have a different approach, a different methodology and philosophy for managing assets? And are you familiar with what that is? Are you going to like it? Does it fit with your style, your attitude about risk, uh, your need for income, etc.? 
I'm not saying that these are reasons for you to go with your advisor or not. I'm saying these are issues you must contemplate. You must evaluate. Your advisor has made a decision that is in your advisor's best interest that may or may not be in your best interest. You need to figure that out. And your advisor, who has been your fiduciary, who has been someone you could count on to give you advice in your best interest, is now suddenly conflicted because your advisor wants you to go with him. And that means... I'm not sure if you can accept that your advisor is objective in this conversation anymore. So you need to talk with your advisor about all of this. And what you also need to do is talk to the firm you're currently with now and say, hey, I just found out my advisor left. I want to know what you folks are doing about this. Who is my new advisor going to be? And I need to interview that person. And I need to decide if I like that person as much as I liked my old advisor and and so on. Which is better, the old advisor at the new firm or the new advisor at the old firm? And as you go through that due diligence, as you engage in these conversations with the old advisor and the new advisor, I believe that the correct answer for you will emerge. And here's the best part. Here's the very best part. This isn't a permanent decision. Uh, You can always change your mind. I would argue that it might be better not to act. In other words, give the new advisor a little time on the job training, so to speak, and on the job audition uh, and check out what life is like at your current firm with the new advisor, the new team you might have with that advisor and see how that goes for a month or two or three. And you can always change your mind and go back to your old advisor after that. But if you go to the advisor now, discover it's a mess, you're not happy for whatever reason, coming back to the uh, firm you're presently with, well, now you're making two moves. Um, Maybe better to make none and eventually one than make one and eventually two. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. Yeah. hope that's helpful. Okay. That's a a lot to think about. It is. It's a lot to think about. And the bad news is this wasn't your idea. You were perfectly happy with your advisor and how everything was going. And and this isn't of your timetable. It wasn't of your motivation. It wasn't your idea. That in and of itself raises a red flag. You know, did your advisor tell you that the advisor was planning to leave, uh, that they were you know, working on this idea, that they had been unhappy or that they were being recruited? Did they give you a heads up that, hey, over the next six months, maybe I might be going to a new firm? And did they give you any sense of this coming? No, no, it was uh, it was a notice. I got an email that said he's not my advisor anymore. And we'll assign a new one. But you have to wonder, therefore, okay, the advisor was clearly making a decision that they believed was in their best interest. May or may not be in yours. Okay. I'm going to have to give him a call again and and go into some of these in-depth questions that you've given me. Thank you. Michael, I'm glad I was able to provide you that additional information for you to contemplate. And I, I know that by you taking the time you need you'll end up with a decision that's right for you. Okay. Thank you very much. Michael, I'm so glad you called. I wish you the very best. That was Michael in California here on The Rick Edelman Show. 888-PLAN-RICK, rickedelman.com. Money doesn't come with instructions. More of your questions coming up on The Rick Edelman Show.
Let's take another telephone call here on the Rick Edelman Show. Off to Hutchison Island in Florida. Paul's with us on the air. How you doing, Paul? Very good, Rick. Thanks for taking my call. It's my pleasure. How can I help? Well, a few weeks ago, you mentioned on the air that the very wealthy people in America are able to uh, lower their tax burden by borrowing using their investments as collateral instead of withdrawing those investments. Right. And so my question is, um, we have, my wife and I have significant assets in 401k accounts and also an after-tax brokerage account, and I'm wondering if we could take advantage of that same strategy. How much money is in your brokerage account? Uh, It's actually a trust uh, that we're getting from my parents, and it's a million... $250,000. Okay. Uh, this will probably not work for you. Uh, first, you cannot borrow against your 401k plan. You can't leverage it um, in, in any regard. You're allowed to, when I say you can't borrow against it, there is a provision in a plan where you can take out a loan in the plan, but that's meant for hardship withdrawals and it's meant for people who need money. It's not in this context that we're discussing here. So that's not available to you in the way that rich people are doing their strategy. And your taxable account because it's a trust i'm willing to bet that the trust has provisions that prevent the ability for borrowing so it is unlikely that the trust will allow this if it were an ordinary brokerage account in your name for example then yes you can borrow against a brokerage account so if that one and a quarter million dollars was just an ordinary joint account with you and your wife then sure you could margin that account Um, you're allowed to margin up to 50 percent of the value of the account. And this is exactly what rich people do. So you could borrow, take out a margin loan, it's called, from your brokerage firm. They'll charge you a very low rate of interest because you've got the collateral of the account itself. It's a low-risk loan because you've got $1.2 million sitting there. They'll be happy to lend you $600,000. And because it's a loan, it's not income, it's not a dividend, it's not a capital transaction. It's not a taxable event. You get 600 grand tax free and you could spend the 600 grand without you having to pay taxes. If on the other hand, you sold $600,000 worth of securities, you'd have to pay taxes on the profits of that. So that could cost you, you know, 30% uh, depending on your tax bracket. Uh, So that could easily cost you a couple of hundred thousand dollars. That doesn't exist when you borrow the money out. That's what rich people do. So you have people like Bezos and uh, Bill Gates and and Elon Musk and others they are worth you know so many tens of billions of dollars that they borrow a few billion tax free and they can easily live on a few you know what's a few billion here or there among friends they could easily live on that so that's how they're able to do it but if you were to try this little stunt with a meager 1.2 million dollars you know compared to their multi billions if you were to try to do that drawing the 600 grand well you'd be drawing the 600 grand because you want to spend it well that means the money's no longer there Uh, now you've only got 600 grand left in your account might you run out of money um before too long and what if the stock market goes down see this is the real key of a margin account if you borrow half the money out of the account that's the legal limit 1.2 million dollar account you borrow half of it 600 grand But if the stock market falls, let's pretend it falls 20% in value, your 1.2 million is no longer 1.2 million. It's now worth 
20% less. Your account's now only worth a million dollars. And since it's only worth a million, the borrowing limit is now 500000 But you borrowed 600000 The brokerage firm will send you an email saying, you got to give us $100,000 within 24 hours or we're going to start selling securities to get our money back from your collateral. And what happens if you do that? Well, they start selling your securities. Now the account's worth even less. Now they're going to send you another margin call and you have a downward spiral. And this is how people go broke with margin accounts. So I don't recommend it. And if you are going to do it, don't go to the full 50% borrowing max. Borrow 10%, 20%. Don't go anywhere near the maximum. So if a stock market crashes, you're not going to get a margin call. So the short answer, Paul, is no. This is not a game that ordinary people like you and me can play. This is for the billionaires to play. This is how the tax code benefits them in a warped way that really wasn't intended by Congress when they wrote the rules, but it's how they get to have a big advantage to lower their tax liability, and it isn't readily available to ordinary Americans like you and me. Rick, great advice. I thank you. Thanks so much for the call, Paul. I really appreciate it. I'm Rick Edelman. You're listening to Paul. He's in Hutchison Island, Florida, and he called 888-PLAN-RICK. And now time for everybody's favorite segment of the program, a visit by my wife, Jean Edelman. Hi, Jean. Hello, everybody. Always great to be here and to share. This week, I want to talk about projecting and predicting. Do you ever find yourself projecting your thoughts, emotions, judgments onto others and then try to predict how they're going to react? This concept has been floating around me all week, so I thought I wanted to share about it. And so what I did was I asked myself, Do I project my thoughts, emotions, and judgments onto others? And am I doing this because I have predicted the outcome? I think this is a precarious place to be because it's important to remember that each of us is unique and special, and we have a special and unique journey and purpose in this life. And so we may be sharing a path, but we are unique unto our own. And so my example is, well, I don't want to share something with person X because I think they're going to react a certain way. And most likely that way is going to be negative or explosive or whatever it's going to be. But what I've been contemplating is shame on me for not giving person X the opportunity of knowing and then deciding for themselves. And I think that this would be a healthier way to approach things. And so what I need to do and what I wanted to share was maybe if we all step back and allow, tune in and recognize that the thoughts and emotions and judgments belong to us and us alone and recognize that we need to share with person X and allow them to process the information and react however they wish to react. Allowing this and having this good practice is creating good communication. And it's also creating trust in one another. I can lean on you, you can lean on me, and we can get through this together, whatever this is. Also, by sharing and talking and not judging and talking about whatever it is that we need to talk about, it's alleviating stress. Because when we feel we cannot communicate about something, we end up having all these conversations in our mind. Because we're trying to predict, but we can't. That is not possible. We can never predict how someone's going to react. 
And so it's really healthier to spit it out and move on and move on together. Move on as a couple, move on as a friendship, move on as a family. But we need to talk. It's healthier to get it out and move on together. And so my word for this week is just allow Allow for open communication. What have we been holding on to? You know what? It's time to talk about it. The A is for allow. We need to allow deciding for themselves. The L is for listen. Listen to each other. We will learn so much. The other L is for love. Love ourselves and love others just for who we are. Find joy in the uniqueness of being who we are. When we talk long enough, we find that common thread. There is no reason that I have to make you like me or you have to make me like you. We are all unique and there is joy in that. The O is for observe. Stop before we speak and determine if what we are about to say is projecting our thoughts and our emotions and our judgment onto other people. The beauty of life is that we each get to form our own opinions and we each get to follow our own paths. And the W is for wisdom. We all have tremendous inner wisdom and we need to tap into it. And it will lead us to what is right for us because we each have this path and this truth. This is a good practice. This is a big practice of really looking at ourselves and what we are trying to communicate with each other. Check in with ourselves often, and it's really going to help make a healthier and happier day. I hope you each have a wonderful week. Enjoy these last few days of summer. The kids are starting to go back to school, and we're starting to get into that old routine again. So take care, everybody, and thanks. That was Gene Edelman here on The Rick Edelman Show. Thank you for joining us on the program today. As always, there's a lot more to The Rick Edelman Show this week. Our full podcast online is filled with more of your calls and additional stories, including the latest on student loan debt and why so many American workers are thinking about quitting their jobs. All that and more on this week's podcast at rickedelman.com. See you next week. Get the truth about money every weekend on The Rick Edelman Show.